Welcome to Fundamentals of Canadian Law. For over a year now, we've been watching the Me Too movement and a seismic shift in public perception and consequences around harassment. But Me Too has been very Hollywood-centric. We've been seeing some news and changes on the Canadian side, but as something that's rooted in the definition of harassment, we wanted to get a better understanding of where the law actually stands. Fortunately, Colleen Dempsey can explain it all. She's the instructor of Law 203-703, Workplace Law, and she's going to walk us through recent changes to the Ontario Health and Safety Act. It wasn't changed in response to Me Too, but the timing couldn't be more pertinent to the cultural conversation around harassment happening right now. This podcast is brought to you by the Queen's Certificate in Law, the only online certificate in law offered by a law faculty in Canada. You can find out more at takelaw.ca. Why has the province updated the occupational health and safety legislation? The province had experienced through the complaint process a number of concerns over a period of time that involved unwanted advances, unwanted comments, unwanted touching, things that constitute harassment. They also updated with respect to violence. And then under a subset of harassment was sexual harassment. So they had a number of people, hundreds of people, thousands of people who made complaints under the Act, but there was no mechanism for these things to be dealt with until they actually amended the Act. Under, under the Act as it is now, following mm-hmm. the amendments, what, what is the definition of harassment in Ontario? The Occupational Health and Safety Act defines harassment, workplace harassment, as engaging in a course of vexatious comment or conduct against a worker in a workplace that is known or ought to reasonably known to be unwelcome. And when they say vexatious, what they mean in law is that its sole purpose is to cause annoyance, frustration, or harassment to the intended victim. So there's a, there's kind of two elements there. One is that it's annoying or frustrating or harassing, and the other is you have to you have to mean to do it. Right. So always when we're dealing with this type of act, it's called mens rea. You have to have a guilty mind. And it doesn't matter that you might think it's um, innocent or you think you're just playing. The fact of the matter is you would probably get that it's unwelcome because of the way in which the recipient responds to it or, for that matter, doesn't respond to it. So is there an element of persistence then to it as well? If, if something is like that's unwelcome, don't do it again? Or is it kind of the first time you do it, that can in itself be problematic? Well, typically, the comment or conduct occurs more than once. It can, in fact, be only once. It could be so egregious that it's a single instance. However, it can occur over relatively short periods of time, for instance, during the course of one day or a longer period, like weeks, days, months, what have you. And when the situation is uh, a single instance, an example of this would be unwanted sexual solicitation or advancement from a su- like an advancement on the person from a supervisor or manager that con- constitutes workplace sexual harassment where there is particularly a power imbalance. And, I mean, we, we mentioned the word unwelcome a few times. Mm-hmm. I think unwelcome is fairly self-explanatory. Mm-hmm. But the, the fact that we're saying unwelcome now is actually a step a step forward with the law itself, right? Absolutely. For a long time, people took the position that it was in good fun, that it was okay for people to make comments about other people's appearance, their their sexual desirability, um, it, you know, the color of their skin, the length of their hair. Did they smile? Did they not smile? Did they have hair? You know, are they skinny? Are they not skinny? Do they have, uh, you know, a prominent behind? Do they have prominent breasts? And people felt absolutely free to make comments. 
Typically, the comments, and we're speaking in a heteronormative sense, were from straight men to straight women. But that doesn't mean that it didn't occur from women to men and it, or it didn't occur from men to gay men or to lesbians and uh, in an attempt to intimidate or to isolate an individual. So this law obviously applies equally to everyone. Absolutely, um, anyone who's classified as a worker under the Act. But the use of the word unwelcome is actually, it's a different word now. Yes. Uh, and it used to be, what, it used to be sort of deemed offensive or? Yeah, so it had to be, um, it was from the perspective of the reasonable person that it was objectively offensive and what now. But, but the point now, it's in fact from the recipient. From the perspective of the recipient, is this an unwelcome intrusion into their life? And they give examples such as making remarks, jokes, or innuendos that demean, ridicule, intimidate, or offend a person displaying or circulating offensive photographs or material in print or electronic form, bullying someone, repeated offensive, re repeated offensive or intimidating phone calls, emails, unwanted touching, unwanted sexual harassment, um, even brushing up against someone. If you do so in a deliberate fashion and you, you know, you touch their behind, you go, you know, rubbing someone's forehead. Like there are things that people should just not do and people have done in the past and there came a point where the government realized enough was enough. Right. And I mean, I, I, everything you mentioned, uh, some of these things I've seen myself in workplaces I've been in the past. I should stress that I've seen none of these things in the workplace where I am right now. Um, Go but, Queen's Law. Exactly. Uh, but I, 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 can either, I either have seen or can easily imagine all of these behaviors. And I can also kind of squint and see how, you know, if I think back to when I was a kid or when slightly older listeners might have been kind of young professionals, how all of this did used to be sort of hand-waved away. Mm -hmm. So this is a stronger stance legislatively against stuff that we just used to not take wouldn't uh, not take us seriously, I guess. Well, absolutely. I mean, this certainly predates the hashtag Me Too uh, movement. This was a recognition of um, a past that, um, in in many respects, like we as a society have moved forward as we have evolved. Um, the manner in which we have structured our human rights legislation. As time goes on, we expand that which is protected ground. So, you know, the for to prevent discrimination or harassment, you are prohibited to uh, harass someone on the basis of race, ancestry, their place of origin, their color, their ethnic origin, their citizenship, their creed, which is a, a, a more archaic way of saying religion, sex, including pregnancy, their sexual orientation, their gender identity, their gender expression, their age, be it over or under 18 or 16, marital status, family status, disability, whether or not they're in receipt of public assistance, that is of course an accommodation, and their record of offensive offenses in employment. So. We expand these specific grounds, and we also have what's known as analogous grounds. So if we say individuals who are not specifically set out in the Human Rights Code or in the Occupational Health and Safety Act, but we recognize that they represent a discrete and vulnerable group in our society, so we will protect them as well. And we also say, as a society, it is inappropriate to discriminate or harass people in areas of employment, housing, services, uh, and uh, education. And this is all this is all pretty central to workplace law. I mean, this is this is essential things that people need to know if they're going to be in or going to be managing in the workplace. Absolutely, um, there is now, and there didn't used to be, a positive duty on employers to create uh, anti-harassment policies, and they must, and the onus is on them to provide this information to new employees so they understand what their rights are and, frankly, what their obligations are. 
So if one is, unfortunately, the recipient of harassment, and they, you can't just, or you shouldn't just sit there and say to yourself, okay, it'll go away, it'll go away. You have a positive duty to say something. We all have a role in this, in our workplaces to prevent this from going further. So if someone harasses you or you are a witness to harassment of a colleague, it is incumbent upon you to go to the person who is the HR, the supervisor, and say, I have seen X, Y, and Z occur, and then it's incumbent on them to address it. And uh, there are reporting obligations through the Occupational Health and Safety Act and whether or not you call the Ministry of Labor. But you must take that first step. So this idea of it being incumbent on you, that's what's meant by a positive duty? Yes, a positive duty that we, we, uh, we all have a role to play, and the only way that we can prevent workplace harassment and workplace sexual harassment is if we all recognize our duties. And uh, certainly uh, um, now employers have this obligation to investigate complaints. I mean, previously people would go and say, oh, so-and-so is causing a problem. He's or she is making inappropriate comments about someone's attire or their national dress or what have you. And they would, you know, employers would go and say, hey, please don't do this. Now, you have to fill out reports, you have to acknowledge. And if there's a pattern of conduct, then this constitutes an opportunity to you know, terminate someone's employment so that they uh, are no longer in a position to offend. So uh, when we start looking at types of conduct, um, when you were reading the definition of harassment, and mm-hmm. we, we unpacked it into certain areas, uh, there's sort of, there seem to be two large areas in there. One is things that can happen peer-to-peer, mm-hmm. uh, but the other is this idea of an imbalance of power. Mm-hmm. that this can play out in a way that this, the law is supposed to prevent people who are at a higher level or have more power from literally abusing the people who are underneath them. Right, and taking advantage of them. So there is a recognition throughout our legal system that where there is an imbalance of power, be it an employer, an employee, and it used to be called the master-servant relationship in recognition that the person who holds the purse strings ultimately they can prevent you from advancing. They can prevent you from getting raises. They can, in fact, prevent you from doing your job. It can cause mental health issues. It can cause physical health issues. They, the, In a person in position to confer or grant you a benefit or somehow an advancement in your workplace, they must not solicit you for sex, for um, sexual favors, or they must not harass you. You know, like People have unfortunately been victimized by... Uh, inappropriate images of a racial nature or a sexual nature. And I, mean, I myself, when I was a general counsel, the, the highest legal officer in a corporation, I had a male employee send me a photograph that was pornographic in nature, and he thought it was hysterical. He could not understand what it was I didn't like about this photograph. And in fact, we had to sit him down with a sensitivity counselor for him to, exp- to, him, for him to understand that in no shape or form was I interested in receiving this from anyone, let alone somebody I had spoken two words to. Right. And he, he took it as I had no sense of humor, whereas he had to understand he was inappropriate. It was unwelcome. Right. And that is now the change. I, you know, the person who's the recipient no longer has the onus to say, well, this is why it's, you know, I'm not a sensitive person. Other people would be disturbed by this as well. You know, we can no longer accept, you know, workplaces where individuals are treated in that fashion. So there's, there's, broadly speaking, this legislation represents a shift to an environment where the law is moving kind of with society. Right. Uh, and this is something that comes up fairly often in this in this space is that the law is a living document. Absolutely. It, it com- it's evolving with us. 
So it feels like as a society we're saying things that we used to accept we no longer accept, and the law is now kind of, I don't know if it's catching up. It sounds like from your example it, it catches up in some places and it sort of forces people forward in others. Mm-hmm. Well, if you look at the law in general in Canada, and in fact if you consider the person's case that uh, recognized women were people under the law, the language in there, in fact, the law is a living tree that um, we recognize as our society evolves and groups and individuals that were previously considered to be less than are welcomed into the tent of our society and are valued members of our society. And if we look by contrast to other jurisdictions, um, we can see that uh, people are not so welcoming. And In fact, when I was in law school, um, that was when the legislation went through to recognize same-sex partners, uh, providing a spousal benefits and eventually the right to marry. And, you know, these are issues of rights, and Canadians have a strong belief, um, and this is demonstrated through survey after survey, that Canadians are not comfortable with the idea of restricting rights. We are more um, an inclusive view of rights as opposed to an exclusive list of rights. So that's why we have analogous grounds. So if you don't fit within the 17 categories, but you can demonstrate that an analogy to those categories, then the law says we will protect you. And over time, we recognize that the past treatment of individuals and asking people to accept what is truly unwelcome and unacceptable behavior. Um, and, and I would emphasize that, you know, it's not that every person in every workplace was experiencing this. What it was was very often a single person in a workplace was engaging this conduct over a course of time to many, many people. And so you have one person who you know, through a desire to intimidate or to hassle and what have you, made the work experience of so many people uncomfortable. I mean, you know, we're talking about invading people's personal personal space, uh, demanding hugs, um, and this is, of course, of a sexual nature, uh, verbally abusing people, making gender-related comments about physical characteristics, the mannerisms, you know, saying to a man if he was considered to be an effeminate man or a woman who was considered to be butch. None of these things have anything to do with someone's job and, and how, in fact, they do their job. But people did feel free to comment on, you know, down to you didn't smile today. You know, what's a nice girl like you? Why wouldn't you smile? Maybe that person doesn't want to smile. Maybe they're not feeling like smiling. Um so we and we want to also take a stand against violence in the workplace because often the harassment can escalate into a position of violence where individuals are rebuffed. A good example of evolution in our society is gender identity and gender expression. So, you know, gender identity is a person's internal and individual experience with gender and it's their sense of being a man, a woman, both, neither, or somewhere anywhere in between on the gender spectrum. And the manner in which they express that um, is their choice. And uh, and the exp- gender expression is how they publicly express this. For a long time, people felt that, um, you know, you were either a man or a woman. And, in fact, one of my dear friends, uh, a well-known uh, professor, um, a legal professor, transitioned to be from a man to a woman at the age of 69. That would have been unheard of 20 years ago. The, you know, Even in a progressive profession like the law, this person would have been looked at askance. But now people go, oh, I understand. Right. Yeah. 
And so the law is sort of evolving with us. Absolutely. And, I mean, as, as we move forward, um, what you were talking about, people who are gender fluid, that's a situation that was once analogous and is now taxed. Correct. So this is, it is I, I don't think there's any way to predict the future accurately, but it's interesting to think that if people are bringing up analogous grounds today, that may well become the text of tomorrow. This, in fact, how is how our laws work. I mean, if you consider um, disability, um, for a very long time, uh, people, employers were not required. If someone had a hearing difficulty or if they had a visual difficulty, the employer was like, well, you don't, you can't do the job. But now we've reached the point where we say, no, 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 no. Is hearing or sight a bona fide occupational requirement? And if you're going to say that it is, you better be able to demonstrate that both objectively and subjectively. Right. And... Um, and now employers have a duty to accommodate people and to the point of undue hardship. And this is something that was not the case. So I myself, having two children, one of whom is legally blind and the other has a hearing impairment, had my children been born, say, 25 years ago, they would face very different workplaces than they will when they are adults and they won't be adults for a good 10 years. Right. So, um, you know, I have great hope for what the workplace will look like for them, particularly as they are young girls. Right. Um, you know, and I and fully recognize that uh, men and uh, and race and, and you know gender and gender fluidity are also um, vulnerable groups. And you think you think about that. So it feels like kind of at the end of the day. I mean, in workplace law is complicated. This Very is why much. we have an, an entire course about it. Um, <laughs> and and well done you for Thank for you. taking us through this course. Um, it feels like, though, at the end of the day, if there's sort of one nugget, if there's a golden rule, it's if it doesn't have anything to do with the actual job that's being done, leave it out. Absolutely. I mean, of course, we don't want to create workplaces where people have no um, human interaction. But as you say, if it is nothing to do with the job, you know, err on the side of caution, uh, simply because someone might find it unwelcome and they may not feel in a position where they can express their their discomfort. Right. And, you know, I'm thinking in the future where I do think the law will continue to evolve is under the definition of who a worker is because there are certain restrictions both under the Employment Standards Act and the Occupational Health and Safety Act of what constitutes a worker. And so this causes problems for people who are in precarious employment situations and the law does not provide them with the same uh, coverage that it does for people who are in traditional employment relationships. So I think the law will then expand the definition of who is covered. I think, I think that's probably an interesting second conversation, actually. Well, hopefully we will have it. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thanks to Colleen Dempsey. If you have employees, plan to hire employees, or are an employee, you should look into our course on Workplace Law, Law 203-703. Find out more at takelaw.ca. Fundamentals of Canadian Law is recorded at Queen's University, situated on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Our theme music is by Megan Hamilton, and original illustrations for this podcast, available at takelaw.ca, are by Valerie Desrochers. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.